the European Union stands united. We will hold the Kremlin accountable. The package of massive and targeted sanctions European leaders approved tonight will have maximum impact on the Russian economy and the political elite. And these sanctions will increase Russia's borrowing costs, raise inflation and gradually erode Russia's industrial base. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. We have purposefully designed these sanctions to maximize the long-term impact on Russia and to minimize the impact on the United States and our allies. The war in Ukraine isn't going to plan for Vladimir Putin. And while the ferocious response of the Ukrainian people has been absolutely awe-inspiring, off the battlefield, there's another war going on. The package of economic sanctions leveled at Russia since Putin ordered his troops to march on Ukraine is unprecedented. It's the economic equivalent of the atom bomb, and it's radiating a new type of fallout into the world economy. All around the world, countries are legislating to adopt a new set of laws first passed in America in 2012, called the Magnitsky Act. The Australian Parliament has passed laws making it possible to punish human rights abusers and corrupt officials who do not face justice in their home countries. The Autonomous Sanctions Amendment Bill is partly based on laws first passed in the United States in response to a death in custody in Russia more than a decade ago. The Magnitsky Act is named after a prominent Russian lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky who uncovered a massive state-sponsored fraud in Russia. Several companies belonging to the largest Western investor in the country, Hermitage Capital, were fraudulently re-registered in the names of several individuals connected to the Russian state, and then used to steal 230 million US dollars worth of rubles from the Russian treasury. The founder of Hermitage Capital, Bill Browder, took the fight for justice for Sergei all the way to Capitol Hill, and in 2012, the Magnitsky Act was passed. The act since proliferated all around the globe in various forms and has been a major input in the construction of the sanctions program which is currently being levelled at Russia in retaliation for Putin's criminal invasion of Ukraine. But the Magnitsky Act angered Putin and he's making it personal. By some estimates, Vladimir Putin is worth more than $200 billion. Seth Doan speaks with a businessman who's made it his life's work to expose the web of corruption behind Putin's immense wealth. When you began your campaign and you had the support of President Putin, did you think he was on your side? I thought that, that he was interested in doing the right thing. Putin's public enemy number one. Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. Browder has been called Putin enemy number one. Bill Browder is our first guest today as we dig into the economic side of the Ukraine war. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. This is the first episode of my new podcast, The Intersection. Conversations on how the intersection between economics and politics is shaping our world. In today's episode, along with Bill Browder, you'll meet John Fagan, 
former director of the US Treasury's Markets Room, and Brendan Walsh, a former portfolio manager at Discovery Capital, both of whom are co-founders of Washington DC-based firm Markets Policy Partners. And our topic of discussion is how the intersection between economic sanctions and global politics is shaping the current political dialogue in the West. We're gonna discuss how sanctions work, why they're politically sensitive, and how the debate on how to deploy them is influencing the state of play leading into the US midterm elections. So without further ado, here's Bill Browder. Yeah, plenty of time. Um, so Bill, could you just give us a, a sort of a, a bridge summary of why um, you've become such a prominent voice in condemning the crimes of Vladimir Putin and against um, the actions of the Russian state? The, um, the, the reason that I've become a critic of the Putin regime is because um, people very close to Vladimir Putin murdered my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, on November 16, 2009, after he uncovered a massive government corruption scheme. Uh, instead of uh, praising him and rewarding him for being a good citizen and a patriot, um, he was arrested, tortured, and killed, and then, cover and then the, his murder was covered up the killers exonerated, and they even the put Putin or Putin put him on trial, Sergei Magnitsky, on trial three years after they killed him, in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. So for me, the whole thing is is extremely personal. That's what has driven me to get justice for Sergei. And as I've been getting justice for Sergei, I've become more and more um, immersed in understanding how. Vladimir Putin is not a normal head of state, but effectively nothing more than a crime boss. Um, unfortunately, a crime boss who has all the tools of a sovereign state. More recently, um, you yourself have personally been the subject of some pretty nasty behavior on behalf of the Russian state. Would you just give us a little bit of a description of, of some of the most egregious examples of, of how they've gone after you? So after um, the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, uh, Vladimir Putin went out of his mind. He was so angry about it. Um, and he did a lot of things. He, he went after the Americans for passing it by, he banned the uh, adoption of Russian orphans by American families in retaliation to the US. And then he went after me. And um, in going after me, he's, he's issued eight Interpol arrest warrants for my arrest. I was even arrested in Madrid in the summer of 2018. I've been uh, threatened with death, with kidnapping. At the, um, at the World Economic Forum in Davos in uh, 2013, Dmitry Medvedev, who was the prime minister when Putin was uh, president, was asked about the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. And he said, it's too bad that Magnitsky is dead and Bill Browder is still alive and running around. The, the general prosecutor of Russia, Yuri Chaika, made a public announcement saying that Bill Browder shouldn't sleep peacefully at night. And uh, of course, in... Um, May, uh, I'm sorry, July of 2018, uh, at the summit in Helsinki between Trump and Putin, uh, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. And, and amazingly, Trump thought that was a good idea. So th these guys have been after me for a long time, and, and uh, it's, been, uh, it's been pretty unbelievable, actually, how much time, effort, and resources they've allocated to this project of getting Bill Browder. Yeah. What did it feel like when you saw Vladimir Putin um, identify you by name? 
Well, so so the, the, the it, it all started in December of 2012. Vladimir Putin has an annual press conference where he goes up on stage and sits there for like seven hours answering questions. And um, that was shortly after the Magnitsky Act was passed. And a number of the questions were about the Magnitsky Act. And normally the questions are very tame, almost softball questions. But for some reason, everyone got excited about challenging him on the Magnitsky Act. And he got more and more angry and and uh, and... At some point, he said, Mag- Sergei Magnitsky was, wasn't a human rights lawyer. Uh, he was a lawyer for Bill Browder, who was wanted for crimes in our country. And it was pretty remarkable when he said that, for one simple reason, uh, Vladimir Putin never mentions his enemies by name. He uh, always refers to the person as that lawyer, that, that banker, that filmmaker, yeah. etc. whenever he's talking about somebody he doesn't like. He never. He doesn't want to. It's almost this mafia type of thing where he doesn't want to um, give a person a, a name because that humanizes them, and it's much easier to kill people if they're just that person. And um, the fact that he gave me a name and he used my name and he used it with with real venom, and you could see it on his face. He was furrowing up his forehead and just so angry. It was pretty remarkable, and and uh, and of course, lots of bad things have happened since then to me and people around me and people who supported me. No, I can imagine that would have been quite a surreal moment. You, you mentioned Davos there. and Are you going next week? I'm, I, I will be going to Davos in uh, uh, two days' time. It starts uh, Sunday night. I'll be there Sunday. Yeah. What's the reception that you uh, get at Davos like these days versus, um, you know, say back in the period that Red Notice explores, because one of the themes that I think resonates through both of your books is frustration with the lack of urgency amongst US leaders and, and world leaders, as you know, you were sounding the alarm on something which now is could not be clearer for obvious reasons. I guess this will be the first time that you've you've attended Davos since since Russia formally invaded. But over the past, you know, few years, um, has the reception that you receive in terms of trying to make these points changed at places like Davos? Davos was always this, I would almost call it a, a sort of disgusting gathering of ass kissers, people wanting to get business from the Russians. And nobody wanted to say a bad word about them and nobody wanted to be in any way challenging them because then the money might not flow their way. And I was always seen as this huge party pooper and and it was always intriguing for everybody that I would go there. And I, and I, I would go to Davos and, the, and there would always be something called the Russia session where some um, uh, senior government minister from Russia would be there who would then extol the virtues of investing and doing business in Russia. And I would, uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, couldn't stop me from you know, putting my hand up in these sessions. And, and the first time I did this, it was um, uh, the deputy prime minister, Igor Shuvalov. And this was maybe five five or six years ago and and it was being live streamed and and uh, and the um, a moderator called on me in the audience and I had a little sort of two minute executive summary of how they murdered Sergei Magnitsky and I, I I went through that and I said so Mr. Deputy Prime Minister, how can you sit up here and and talk about how it's a good place to invest when when the largest foreign investor in your country was expelled his lawyer was then arrested, tortured and killed. And now you're chasing, chasing me to um, stop fighting for justice. And, and uh, 
it was a, a terrible moment for him, and and everyone was like, "Wow, that's pretty pretty intense." We know each other well. Um, this is a question for you, uh, Igor. You show some great videos. You've got some wonderful people up on your panel. Um, we're all saying very nice things about Russia. My own experience um, has been different. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I was the largest portfolio investor in Russia. I had uh, $4.5 billion invested in the country, and I was investing in a number of Russian companies where I encountered corruption. I complained about the corruption, um, and uh, as a result of complaining about the corruption, I was expelled from the country. Um, my visa was permanently canceled, and I was declared a threat to national security. Um, shortly thereafter, the police raided my offices in Moscow, and they um, took away all of our corporate documents. And we discovered a few months later that we no longer owned our corporation. It had been fraudulently re-registered out of our name into a convicted murderer who had been released from jail early um, to put his name on these documents. We hired seven lawyers to um, uh, represent us. They discovered um, that not only had our companies been stolen, but the people who stole our companies stole $230 million of taxes that we paid from the Russian government. We filed criminal complaints. Our lawyer was arrested. One of our lawyers was arrested. Six of them fled the country. The one who was arrested was then tortured and killed in prison by the Interior Ministry. This is a worldwide story. The president of the country called for an investigation into the people who killed my lawyer. One year after the investigation, the people who killed the lawyer have been promoted and honored with state honors. Now, my question for you, Igor, is what's going to prevent all of these um, reputable companies, particularly Pepsi, who's just uh, gone in from having the same experience? And why should anybody, after my experience and after nothing has been done, consider investing in Russia? And, and, uh, and it was publicized and it was on TV. And he was so humiliated and upset by the whole thing that, that the next year in Davos, they demanded that the Russia session was off the record, Chatham House rules. And, uh, uh, and I did the same thing off the record. And it was, it was so explosive that the, that the journalists didn't, didn't honor the Chatham House rules and just wrote about it. And uh, it upset uh, the Russians so much that the following year they had a session and just didn't have questions. Yeah. Well, that's it's an interesting allegory for the way that they've been managing information internally um, over the last few years, right? Like, just feels like the screws have been being tightened um, on all fronts. Yeah, well, indeed. Interestingly, I mean, the the I, I would imagine, and I can't say this for sure, but I would imagine that the Russians have called up Klaus Schwab, who is in charge of the World Economic Forum, and and uh, said, you know, dis please disinvite or not please, but disinvite Bill Browder, otherwise we're not coming. And I'm sure. Klaus Schwab has said, well, I can't do that because it would be not seen to be good or whatever. And so strangely, the World Economic Forum has has continued to invite me um, year after year after year in spite of all this, because I think it, it, in a certain way, it would be terribly embarrassing if they actually um, had succumbed to Russian pressure. Yeah. I mean, so, Bull, what, what's your plan when you get there this time then? I mean, this is a really poignant, um, important moment for you, I guess. I was going to say, it's the same thing as that, what I've been doing for the last three months, which is, you know, to anybody who will listen, I'm telling everybody that, you know, if we don't stop Russia and Ukraine, we're going to be fighting them uh, on a NATO border. And how do we stop Russia and Ukraine? We support the Ukrainians in every way possible. And we, and we, we cut off Russia from all sources of funding, 
And, um, and, and I can't make that point enough. I can make that point over and over to every different constituency that has a, a say in this. And, and at Davos, there's a lot of corporations there that mm. if they, ha- if they're not, if they haven't already divested, they should. And, uh, I'll be banging that drum over and over and over again. Absolutely. Um, that's probably a good um, segue to shift a little bit to, to the conflict itself. So w- when you woke up on the 24th of February, were you surprised that the Russians had launched the invasion? Definitely. I, uh, Putin has always played uh, two faces. He, he's had one, one, he has one face for the Western world, for, for the Davos crowd, for the G20 crowd, for the World Cup crowd. And then another face for his enemies, who he goes around assassinating, bombing, t- you know, redrawing borders, etc. And it's um, and he's very successfully played these two faces. And there's a lot of people, like the Germans, for example, really wanted to find a way to to continue to do business with him. And so, like the the invasion of of um, uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, that everybody sort of blamed it on Russian-backed separatists. I mean, it's just absurd, this word Russian-backed separatists. It has nothing to do with Russian-backed separatists. These are just Russian mercenaries of one sort or another invading. But he, he didn't want to actually have, you know, the Russian military invade so he could continue to do business with Germany and all these other countries. You know, same, and, and then every atrocity he's committed, killing Boris Nemtsov, shooting down an MH17, poisoning the Skripals, has always been, you know, everybody knew he did it, but he's always been able to say, well, it wasn't me, you know, uh, and, and by doing so, um, the people who wanted to appease him and apologize for him and continue to do business with him had a, had an easy way out. And, and so the idea that he would put on, you know, he put the Russian military with their full insignia <laughs> and, and roll across a border was counter to everything he's done for the last 22 years and did surprise me because He's always been involved in these plausibly, plausibly deniable um, sort of crimes as opposed to one that there's no denying it whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important point. What are your sort of observations of the conflict so far? And, it, you know, have you been surprised even given your experience by the brutality of of the way that they've um, operated this war? Um, no, no, I, I haven't been surprised at all. Um, I mean, they're constantly brutal all the time, there's no, there's nothing non-brutal about them. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible sort of sadistic, amoral, psychotic, you know, culture of brutality there just completely. Yeah. One topic that's sort of been discussed, might have been Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham that first got this into sort of the public debate, but this idea of the potential for Putin to be displaced internally, um, you know, like a Brutus style character emerging. Do you have any observations on whether that's likely or not? Because intuitively, it, it stands to reason that internal opposition should be increasing, given what's going on. But to an uneducated observer, it feels like Putin's completely isolated himself, um, even from his innermost circle. So I wonder um, your views on whether or not that's possible, um, you know, likely, unlikely. Um, it's not possible and unlikely. <clears throat> Putin is a, is a terribly paranoid little man. He... Um, he finds uh, uh, disloyalty and betrayal in people who are the most loyal and and um, uh, and a non-betraying of all of his of everybody. He he sits at tables twenty five feet long. He 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 will not let any of that ever gain momentum. He's constantly on the lookout for it. No, and everybody's afraid of him. They're terrified of him. These guys are practically pissing in their pants when they're in, in his presence. Remember that that. Um, at the very beginning of the war, he gathered up all of his sort of generals yeah. and, and 
And there's one of the one of the guys he had a go at, didn't he? And the guy was just visibly shitting himself. As um, and 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 as, what, what, um, what what's so remarkable about that is that guy, you know, like in his day to day activity, like you know, plucks people's eyeballs out with his. <laughs> so to scare to frighten that guy, yeah, that gives you a, a reference. How, how would you rate the U.S. and the and the West more broadly's um, efforts to respond so far? Um, normally, I'm highly critical of of of. Uh, the U.S., U.K., and your EU, particularly the EU, um, but this time around, I have to say, I mean, and I would say for 20 years, I've been critical of of their inaction and bad policy and appeasement. But this time around, um, I have to say that that they're doing what I would do if if um, if I was if I was a policymaker. I mean, the, freezing the central bank reserve, supplying massive weapons, uh, uh, going after the oligarchs, um, cutting Russia off from SWIFT stopping the purchase of oil all these things are exactly what should be done and and there some of them are being done later than sooner um, but that, that's just how government's decision making works but but I would say that that the policy is right on and um yeah uh, and I, I have I have got great confidence actually in in the way that this is this um western uh, way the, the way the way the west is conducting this war right now yeah, no, for sure. The um the way that sort of it's galvanized um you know the West internationally and, and even domestically within the US is um you know I don't think many people would have uh, believed was possible, you know, before all this happened. This question of direct US involvement in the conflict. Um you know, we all understand why it's uh you know such a fraught part of the world, uh, or sorry, such a fraught conflict for the US to, to venture into because of the potential for it to, um, you know, trigger a broader conflict between the US and Russia. Do you think, um, do you think the US should um, be directly getting involved, first of all? And second of all, do you think that it's likely or that it will will happen um, based on what we know now? Um, I, you know, I think that the idea that Russia and the U.S. are in a hot war with each other is probably a bad idea, given that they're two nuclear powers. But we're in a world of of um, asymmetric war. We're in a world of proxy war. We're in a world of of disruption where nothing. You know, it's it's not as if we we can't do almost everything we want to do without being, um, you know, at war per se. And Putin is basically just a thug, and he's a thug who understands nothing other than brute force. And if we really want to stop him from uh, doing what he's doing, which we have to do, you know, the only thing he understands is a boot on the throat. How, how whose boot that is, and how we engineer that is is you know open for for discussion and debate. And there's lots of, of subtleties and nuance around it. But you know, we have to show this guy that you know <laughs> if he wants to do this type of stuff, basically causing just havoc for the, I mean, killing innocent people in Ukraine. And, you know, that we're, we're going to have a, a, a global starvation now because of the, of the uh, food, the wheat's not getting out of Ukraine and oil prices are causing, you know, there'll probably be 20 different coups around the world in all sorts of little countries in Africa and Latin America and Asia. Right. I mean, yeah. the damage that this guy has done is so incredibly far and wide that um, we really need to punch him hard in the face. And so he backs off. And and how we do that is open for debate, but he should not think <clears throat> that he can get away with this without really feeling some pain. 
Well, so that brings me to what I think is a really critical point at this at this juncture, and that's, you know, what off ramps do you think are left for Putin? Because obviously the invasion hasn't gone to plan; it's been a disaster. But I also sense—I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong—that the the number of sort of exits that he has available to him is reducing dramatically day on day. How do you think about that? I don't. I don't think we should ever even repeat that word again off ramps he doesn't he doesn't deserve any off ramps the only off ramp is either uh, at the um uh, nuremberg or the hague there's obviously no no excuse nor you know he's not ever to be forgiven for what he's done but in terms of averting an escalation in the direct military threat i i i think that there's there's a concept which still exists today which never has changed which is mutually assured destruction I mean, for us to say we're also scared of this guy, we we, we need to like hide under our beds because he's got nuclear weapons. Well, so do we, and we have more than he does. And the West can 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 really, you know, I mean, if, if he's not going to. There is there is no winning a nuclear war, and he's not stupid. This guy is is a, um, you know, he's 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 totally amoral, illegal, you know, crook, killer. Um, but he's also so you. I guess the takeaway there, Bill. Sorry to interrupt you. Is so you believe that Putin still subscribes to the doctrine of mutually assured destruction because that's something that people are questioning. There's a lot of discussion now about the use of you know they call tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield. Um, you know, Emmanuel Macron's been in the press talking about how he, in his private conversations with Putin, he thinks he's going to, you know, he's he's a higher risk of using a munition like that than than perhaps is in the consensus. So I, I just wonder whether. Um, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I think I think you're probably right. But but there is a school of thought out there that says that perhaps you know Putin is far enough off the reservation now that he would consider using something like this. But you think that's wrong? I'm sure he would use a nuclear weapon in in Ukraine if he if he thought it would help him secure a victory. But it's not clear how that would help him secure anything. All he would do is kill a lot of people and create a, a cloud of of fallout that probably goes over Moscow. I don't see what that accomplishes for him militarily. I mean, he, he, he needs to accomplish something militarily and just a, a major act of brutality. All that's going to do is alienate the Chinese, and the Indians and the Brazilians and the South Africans who are currently on his side. I don't, I don't see how that yes. so- solves any problems for him. One of the critical aspects of the debate on Russian sanctions going on in Washington right now surrounds their popularity among the electorate. That's because while economic sanctions are designed to mete out harm to the economies of the countries they target, they also create economic problems for the countries who deploy them. For instance, when the world stops buying Russian oil and gas, petrol prices go up almost everywhere in the Western world. To get a feel for how policymakers in Washington are weighing that balance between a firmer line on the war in Ukraine and the impacts that sanctions have upon American consumers, We're going to talk to co-founders of Washington-based firm Markets Policy Partners. The firm's sort of like a nexus between Congress and the financial markets. They advise policymakers on the likely impact of legislation and participants in the financial markets on the outlook for macroeconomic reform and stuff like that. I've known these guys for years and they're some of the smartest people on the street when it comes to reading the tea leaves in Washington. They both had big gigs before founding Markets Policy Partners, too. But I'll let them tell you about that. How are you, Jack? Plugging away. How are you doing? Mate, I'm good. 
My title was director of the Treasury Markets Room, and the Markets Room is essentially the financial markets analysis unit in the uh, first floor of the Treasury Department, two floors underneath the secretary's office. Uh, I believe it's still in the same in the same location, and uh, it is tasked with providing principals at Treasury in the White House and and the staff of those institutions with high frequency financial market analysis. And Brendan. Um... How about your background, mate? What were you focused on when you were at Discovery Capital? And uh, you know, how does that interrelate with, with what you do now at, at Marcus Policy Partners? Yeah, definitely. I was um, part of the macro team, uh, especially focused on uh, U.S. data. Um, but and I also um, ran the global financials team. So we invested in everything from banks to payments to insurance um, and, and across the globe. You know, I would do uh, actually uh, a yearly trip to your uh, your little island down down under. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a um, an interesting conversation with your boss each year when you just knocked on his door on the way to the airport and said, "I'm just going to Sydney for a week." Uh, yes, guys. What's um obviously the 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 war in Ukraine is is the primary focus in terms of mac- macro um, for the world at the moment, but we also sort of entering are entering that period where the initial shock of the conflict is wearing off. We're trying to, we're sort of starting to see what the long-term level of alarm and focus is going to be, you know, from both from legislators, the media and everybody else. So I'm interested in, in right now in DC, um, how preoccupied the discussion going into the midterms is um, by the Ukraine issue. And um, and then from there, we'll, we'll chat about the sanctions package. Yeah. In terms of the war in Ukraine, there is, you know, there's, relative unity uh, and support for Ukraine. You see some, you know, you see some votes a little bit split on some of these aid bills and that sort of thing. But it is a, you know, it's a relatively unifying uh, dynamic uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and a very divided Washington, D.C., I would say. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And it's also happening internationally, right? The invasion has galvanized, um, you know, the West in general as well, I feel like. Do you want to, let's talk about the package specifically a bit. So, from what I can tell, the the two main points of differentiation in the package as it stands now versus, say, the previous packages of sanctions that have been leveled against countries like Iran and North Korea is that it's far more broad in terms of um, the number of private citizens it captures um, just in terms of its scope. Uh, it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's novel in the sense that it introduces some more direct limitations like, you know, you can't fly a Russian private jet through American airspace, stuff like that, which is, you know, feels quite bespoke and, and perhaps new. Um, uh, and then, you know, the last most obvious one being the, the West's program of freezing Russian central bank assets abroad. Um, so, you know, are, are there other aspects that are new in this package? Um, and among all of the novel sort of aspects, what do you think, you know, is, has been the most meaningful. Well, I think you are you're correct in terms of the the scope being, you know, one of the one of the sort of distinguishing factors on this, and you know, the U.S. banning Russian oil, coal, gas imports, and and that sort of thing, confiscating oligarch assets. Uh, this and and not just not just that the unity that that galvanizing of the West that you mentioned. That's a I think a pretty a distinct feature of this round of sanctions. You often see the U.S. sort of go it alone in the sanctions route. That was the Trump administration playbook 
Uh, they used a lot of sanctions and tariffs and that sort of stuff, but it was very unilateral. The Biden administration has been very successful in getting the EU uh, and, uh, and Western allies to come along in a way that uh, certainly in the case of like Germany and some of the other countries that are more inclined to sit on the fence, uh, they've they've gotten them further than a lot of people thought was possible. Well, yeah, I was I was going to say I'm sure the Biden administration would point to greater EU buy-in as a as a reflection of their diplomatic abilities, but you know it's it's clearly just being driven by what's happened. <laughs> like I'm not sure that that it was clever diplomacy that got the um, EU the Europeans on board. Do, do you think that, or or do you think that it was just such an egregious violation of international norms that everybody just had to jump on board in terms of projecting the response? Well, it's always hard to say, but there a lot of communications go on below the surface, and uh, and it is the engagement I'm sure that is happening at the diplomatic level is at at really all levels. It's not just the high level. It really is the staff and you know trying to trying to get buy-in and uh, and consensus on these things is an all singing all dancing operation and so it's it's always hard to say like from the outside looking in how much diplomacy is is playing a role and how much of it is just the inevitability of a reaction to uh, to this uh, to this international crime committed by Russia I think the back to the distinguishing factors the novel stuff the most the, the most commented upon aspect were the jettisoning of Russia from SWIFT, uh, the SWIFT network, and the central bank assets, uh, freezing the central bank assets overseas. And, uh, and so when it comes to international payments, I know Brendan knows a lot a lot about that subject. Yeah, Brendan. So why is the decision to um, kick them off the SWIFT network matter? Um, and what does it mean going forward? Well, it's it's a huge. It's kind of like a, in terms of the financial uh, sanctions. It's a, it's the nuclear option. So it, you're basically shut them out from. Uh, not basically, you did. You shut them out from the, the global financial system. Uh, so now anything that they do, they have to do kind of on a uh, bilateral payment. You know, India is still buying their their oil, and so is uh, China. But uh, for for just a regular. Uh, so that just just to be clear, because I think that's an important point. Like when we we talk so much about this stuff, but just just understanding the actual mechanics. So, if India wants to buy a consignment of Russian anything, but let's just say oil and gas, does does that just mean that they have to strike an over the counter transaction bilaterally with Russia and pay them in rupees or rubles, or are they? Because they can't pay in U.S. dollars, right? Because then the Department of Justice will claim jurisdiction over the over that transaction. So at the sovereign level, it's not the end of the world. You know, China and and Russia can figure out a way to, to get money between them. Where it's a huge deal is for every Russian company. Um, they have no capability to um, to export goods and and get paid for them um, anymore. So it, it it's just not that they <laughs> made much, anyways. Uh, but it just it made it that much more difficult. And but actually, what Russia did have was a, a number of you know intelligent people that that um, were able to essentially work remotely. Uh, and now, if you have a Russian programmer, you're not allowed to pay pay him. So um, what what Russia is seeing is a huge amount of brain drain. Anybody that that can get out of the country and and work from somewhere else is is, is probably done that. I wonder if. Do you think paying a Bitcoin ransom to a hacker who's installed ransomware on your computer would be a violation of the sanctions? Yeah, that's a <laughs> it's a bit of a gray area. Uh, it, it goes against the spirit of the law, but 
from what I've understood talking to a few lawyers, it still is technically legal to do. Interesting. I mean, it's clearly not the main focus. It just occurs to me is it's just an intersection of two different issues because like, the ransomware thing is clearly a, a pandemic of its own right now. On the sanctions again, Brendan, I feel like oftentimes the reporting doesn't go into much detail about why it's a difficult decision as to whether or not to place sanctions onto a rogue actor like Russia. It's kind of like, uh, especially when it comes to the financial sanctions, you know, people that live in glass houses, you know, shouldn't throw stones. We we don't want to make this a, a precedent that, you know, anytime someone does something uh, that annoys you, you, that you kick them off the financial system, you know, obviously went that far. And and, and the more important point I think that, that people are missing is th- these, these sanctions are just starting to take hold. It takes a while to implement them. So the, the, the pain that's going to be seen in the Russian economy uh, on the ground on main street is massive. What, well, let's game that out. What, Basically, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to, to run a company uh, in Russia, you know, unless you're selling something to, you know, a few few countries that are still willing to, to deal with Russia. Yeah, I mean, they talk about things like these, the, the sort of nonlinear pain of some of these. One good example is the airplane parts. Airflot flies a lot of Boeing and Airbus jets. And so... After a while, they're going to need replacement parts for the majority of that fleet, and they're going to struggle to get those parts. Uh, that is, you know, can they can they source them from uh, from actors willing to skirt sanctions? Yes, but certainly not in the same kind of with the same ease and the same kind of pricing that they would need. Uh, there's a similar argument to be made about like software updates and that sort of stuff. You know, this is a massively, John, you're hundred percent right. It's massively underreported. What a big deal. So Microsoft has shut off Russia from, from software updates. And so has every other company. So you're going to get to a point uh, in the next actually couple months where, you know, Russia's just not going to be able to fly their planes because they, they haven't got any, any software updates. And also your, your computers aren't going to work because uh, you know, you, you can't get a Microsoft uh, bug update. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. So they're not allowing the the software updates to flow through. That's um, oh well, I guess they'll just have to start hacking their own people. Um. <laughs> that's and that and that's it, you know. And and that's where you see, you know, the when we talk with the geopolitical experts, the power base behind the Kremlin are not the urban elites that are going to see their quality of life suffer dramatically. They're they're going to they're the ones that are going to have uh, you know, be impacted by Western companies and international companies leaving Russia because they were the consumers of those goods. Uh, they're the ones that, uh, you know, have an iPhone. They're the ones that, you know, want to travel abroad internationally and, and that sort of thing. The, the power base of the Kremlin, however, are the, you know, the, the, the more rural and uh, the folks that are <laughs> the bedrock sort of uh, Russian, Russian people who are much more willing to accept the the line that the Kremlin tells them and don't necessarily have a fantastic quality of life anyway and are willing to, you know, willing to take the pain to follow the the Russian sort of state line. Now that's the that's that's I'm quoting what other people have have told me, but that certainly seems to be what they're betting on. And yeah. Well, what are the costs, um, you know, onshore in the West as we roll out a program like this? So like, you know, I think it's important to understand that the reason that it's a difficult decision, um, even when the person who you're considering sanctioning is, you know, 
you don't even have to have the discussion about whether or not he deserves to be sanctioned, right? But there still is a discussion as to whether or not to do it. And so I just want to dig a little bit into what leveling sanctions that a country like Russia does for things like onshore consumer price inflation, um, which is obviously a, you know, a very big focus at the moment in terms of trying to read the tea leaves on the macro policy outlook. So, you know, do, does, does leveling this program of sanctions drive prices higher in the US? Um, and, you know, how do you think about that in terms of the popularity of sanctions among the US electorate? Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that President Putin and, uh, and his cronies are using energy as a weapon, energy prices as a weapon, uh, wheat and, uh, and grains and that sort of thing, the exports from Ukraine blocking those uh, and, you know, trying to turn global public opinion, you know, U.S. public opinion against the sanctions. Uh, and, and that's those are the levers that they have to pull and they're pulling on them pretty hard. Uh, you know, when you look at the inflationary impulse in the West, there's there are a lot of lots of noise, lots of cross currents, but our the, what we're beginning to see is an increasing, you know, a narrowing of those inflationary pressures uh, to the the energy and food uh, components that are most impacted by the uh, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's by design. President Putin wants those prices to stay high and go higher. Uh, he wants a you know he wants food disruption, global famine. He wants maximum disorder around the world. Um, and, uh, and those are, you know, those are sources of power for him. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that the Biden administration is, is, is desperate to try to counter these, reaching out to Venezuela to source oil and uh, releasing from the strategic economic, I mean, strategic petroleum reserve. There's only so much they can do. And, uh, you know, but, but that's, that's really what they're what they're stuck with. And, uh, you know, if the if the if if inflation does stay high uh, with the uh, you know, with this with this supply shock, this ongoing supply shock uh, being a main driver of it, then we will see economic consequences. Look at the top issue that U.S. voters are talking about. And it's it's inflation. It's going to cost the Democrats almost certainly at the ballot box. That's what everybody's expecting. And, uh, and it's something that is, you know, a political problem for leaders all around the world. So on that, do, do, you, do you sense that, that sanctions are on balance a popular or unpopular agenda? Like going into the midterms, do you think people would prefer to hear a hard line on Ukraine or to hear that enough's enough, we've, sanctioned, we've, we've delivered too many sanctions and that's why you're paying too much at the pump? Like which of those do you think is more compelling? I think the I think the the U.S. voter actually compartmentalizes the two. Um, I'm not a political expert, but the Biden administration desperately tried to call this Putin's price hike, and that really fell flat. And of course, the Republicans are not uh, hanging around Putin's neck because that gives President Biden an out. They they squarely blame him, and they've got a bigger microphone. Um, the, the the I don't think that the American people are in the process of of reorienting their you know, support for Ukraine uh, or their thoughts about sanctions uh, in a way that, um, you know, toward toward those issues. I think they they just don't link them up and uh, and maybe maybe they maybe they should. But <laughs> it's uh, I mean, the White House would probably rather have them do that. But I think that right now those are considered like two separate issues. Yeah, but, uh, but they're not is the problem. There is a trade off between projecting a firmer line on 
on the sanctions and 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 inflation at home. Like, and I just I understand what you're saying. Like, and it's good that it's good that the discussion is compartmentalized. But at the end of the day, there's a decision that has to be made legislatively as to which is more important. Yeah, I mean, I think that the decision time will come when the Republicans are uh, in control of the the House and Senate, or you know, or after the midterms, essentially. And uh, and you know, the idea is basically if you know, I don't think that there's a, a constituent, right, a constituency right now to ease off of those sanctions um, with President Biden in the White House. Now, if President Trump, I mean, if, if former President Trump runs again and wins the White House and he's got both houses of uh, Congress behind him, that's a completely different, a completely different scenario. Uh, but right now, you know, it's it makes it makes the Republicans case stronger to say inflation is Biden's fault. We're you know, basically backing Ukraine. That's the popular narrative. That's that's the popular position to take. And those are the two things that they want to push. And I think that they're going to make political hay by pushing those separately. And the more that the U.S. I just don't think that U.S. voters are going to be in a position to say, hey, let's let I just don't think they're going to be in a mindset in the in the at least in the near term to say, let's let Putin off the hook here because uh, it's it's too expensive me to fill up my f-150 yeah yeah totally um imagine if could you imagine if trump um won in 2024 and came in and then rolled back the the russian tariff the russian sanctions program as his like first move (laughs) absolutely a credible scenario i know it's not beyond in fact you know i I don't want to get into speculating on who's going to win which election etc but like you can make an argument that it's probable so i think um you know, that's that's potentially another source of massive scandal and outrage, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that when when you have the, uh, I mean, a, a second term Trump administration <laughs> will will be will will have a lot of uh, a lot of sources of. Uh, yeah, that's right. They won't be short of scandal, intrigue, excitement. They won't be short on it. This will be this this will be one of this would be one of uh, a number <laughs> one would imagine. So. So there's episode one of The Intersection. Uh, If you enjoyed the discussions, I'd ask you to follow the podcast on Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It helps me to get the show out to a broader audience. Stay tuned for episode two, which is coming next week. And until then, I'm Jack Wright. Take it easy.